0: everybody welcome to episode 16 of the mountain bike podcast i'm your host jonathan lee with my co-host steven lewis what's up the fcc still hasn't found us thank goodness yeah yeah we are in casa de Lee again we are yep and we are recording thank you trainer road for the microphone still we should really get our own sometime soon Yeah, maybe. Yeah, probably, yeah. Um, And we are going to talk more mountain bikes tonight. Good. Yes, as always. So you can find us at mtbpodcast.com. You can listen to the latest episode there, share episodes. Uh, You can click on find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, everywhere else. Find us on different social profiles at mtbpodcast. And, yeah, uh, a few things we want to do before we go into anything, Stephen, is uh, check out some of the reviews that you all have left. And you can leave those reviews on itunes uh you can leave them in other spots too but itunes is the main spot where people see these reviews and man we're up to we're, we're still at five stars Good. perfect ratings that's right yes Yeah. <laughs> yes. so if you guys would like to leave us a rating uh, five stars please and if it isn't five stars just let us know reach out to us at mtbpodcast.com you can go on there and contact us let us know what we can do to change it and uh, hopefully we can improve things for you at the same time.
1: And you guys will see in the questions here, we are being held ransom or
0: hostage for hostage, a five-star yeah. review. <laughs> so a uh, couple of reviews really quick. Uh, first one says, thanks for all your hard work from Sandstone Cycles. You guys are the most professional and inspirational show happening in the mountain bike industry right now. Sweet. That's quite the praise. Yeah. Yeah. He says, great timing for a great show. Thanks for sharing exciting industry news, race results, and really helping others instead of just talking about yourselves the whole time like other mountain bike podcasts out there. Me. That's kind of the point with this one, though, is like we really wanted to... We want this podcast to be about mountain bikes, not about us. Yeah
2: nobody as, cares about me as, I mean, who as, am i as
0: much as we try to bring ourselves into it all the yeah. time but you know um, he says we listen to every episode of the trainer road and mountain bike podcast good to hear man uh, so much info you are our second best podcast of the PulpMX.com show Which, that's saying a lot
1: in yeah, the podcast world
0: that is man if uh, you guys don't know about the pulp mx show it's a motocross one so good stuff he says stay rad you're loyal listeners from new mexico sandstone cycles sweet I've never been to Sandstone Cycles, but they appear to be really good dudes and, you, and gals. Yeah. And I think that if you are in New Mexico and you're by Sandstone Cycles, you should drop in, buy a tube, buy some other stuff, whatever else. Yeah. I bet they're really awesome people.
1: Buy a water bottle with their logo on it. Yeah,
0: and Something run like it. Something like that. Something like that. Yeah. yeah, go do it. Thanks, all. Uh, next one. It says, these guys are great. Uh, do you want to read that one, Steve? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Such
1: a well done podcast. They know what they're talking about and just get you pumped to go riding. And I think that's kind of that's the goal. That's the goal. That's really the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, they go on to say they provide value inf- valuable information on all things bike related and know how to break down the technical details where it doesn't just sound like jargon. Yeah, which is really you know we really want to cut through. <laughs> you know that's the thing with a lot of a lot of our reviews and a lot of our product details everywhere you get them, they're all going to be marketing related. Yeah. And we want to know how they're actually going to work. Yeah. Not just what Giant or Trek or, you know, Maxis says.
0: Yeah. We want you guys to know how they're actually going to work. So that's
1: kind of our goals, man.
0: Goals. Yeah. That's really it. Um, Next one says, uh, from biking kangaroo says legit, awesome podcast, good sound quality and excellent topics. Keep up the good work. And then also, and he says, Yeti so many times I don't care to read them And then he says you should be drunk by now If you're sticking to your work with each Yeti Don't go back on your word nobody likes that guy Yeah (laughs) that guy is a jerk Yeah so uh, Biking Kangaroo and Got in great in Sandstone Cycles thanks For those reviews there are more that were left this week But those ones are up there Thank you, guys. Uh, if you want to leave a review, um, we'll hopefully read it out. And, uh, Steven, something I remembered, we need to give away some stuff to some people. So let's pick a five-star review from next week, and we'll give something away to that person. Yes. So uh, next, so leave a review this week, and then I have, it's crazy that I'm giving this away because it's going to cost quite a pretty penny to ship, but I've got a Yakima bike rack, like a really good one okay. for a roof rack for a car. Okay. Okay. And, uh, this one, I think it's, uh, I think it's somewhere around 300 bucks retail. Jeez. Yeah. It's there. I, I, want, I don't think it's the hold up cause I think hold up grabs the frame and I'm not one of those humans. It's that the one that slams the front wheel. Yeah. Because like, you know, two types of people, I mean, uh, you know, serial killers and people that lock in their bike by the frame on the roof rack. Yeah. No, same, that's one person. Same person. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> same. Yeah, so I would not do that. This one holds under the wheel. Gotcha. But it's a really nice rack. Yeah. So, we'll give it away to somebody that does, uh, that leaves a five-star review, our favorite five-star review. That's yes. subjective, by the way, people. Very subjective. Yes. We get to decide what that is. So, leave us a five-star review this week, and uh, even better, if you share the podcast and you let us know how you shared the podcast in that review, then you are seriously stacking the odds in your favor. That's yep. like buying 50 raffle tickets. Yeah. Yep. There we go. So, uh, let's get into things really quick with the news. Bit of news, Steven, and we are going to go into this more a little later. If you stayed tuned to our Instagram, uh, Facebook, or Twitter, uh, which you can find us at MTB Podcast or on Twitter, the MTB Podcast, you probably saw that we got our hands on something very special. We got the new Jekyll, yeah, 2018 Cannondale Jekyll. Um, is it fair to say totally redesigned for the most
1: part? Yeah, there's some stuff that visually looks similar, it looks like they just moved the shock to a different
0: position. Very redesigned bike. Very redesigned. And the and the Trigger, which is the little brother, so to speak, yeah. to that one. Right? One of the more capable trail bikes out there.
1: Yep, yeah. absolutely. I raced, uh, I raced the Downeyville All-Mountain on it two years ago. The Trigger? Yeah, I had a Trigger Black Incorporated.
0: That's a, ooh, nice. Yeah. Fancy one. Oh, yeah. That's a pretty good setup. So uh, they released those bikes. We're going to talk more about the Jekyll a little later. Yeah, and but, I'll have my Trigger in June. Ooh, you got one of those coming, too. Check you out. Yeah. Is it
1: going to be fancy and green like your current one? Uh, No. I don't remember if I'm getting the gray and lime green accented level two or if I'm getting the like turquoise and tennis ball yellow level one. I don't remember which one they're sending me. Huh. But the turquoise one is cool. It's a very glittery paint job. Nice. The gray one's metallic as well, the level two, but I'll be happy with either. We'll beat we'll beat them both up. It doesn't matter.
0: Nice. There we are. So uh you have the the Jekyll and the trigger. We're gonna go into the Jekyll a little more later on, but the trigger as far as Um, new things. It's basically the same updates, right?
1: Very, yeah, same updates, very completely redesigned. Um, still a four bar, or I guess you would say modified single pivot. Technically, it's not a four bar, right? Um, but yeah, very updated suspension platform, completely new shock. It's going to have the Gemini rear shock on it as well,
0: which has the hustle and flow mode. Which hustle is when you're climbing, yeah, you flip the little lever or you tap the little lever up there, and then it turns into flow, which is no, you know, it's. It's, it's wide open. Let's, let's just go ahead and say it. It's the party mode. It's button. the party mode. That's yeah. what it is. And the trigger, what's, what type of, um, because it's only like one degree different. It's a one degree steeper head tube, right? Yeah. One degree steeper head tube, shorter top tube,
1: um, shorter reach overall. The okay. fr- the center, the front center is, is shorter, yeah. um, steeper seat tube angle by a degree and a half. Okay. And it's really going to be, you know, it's a 145 and 115 millimeter bike. So it really is. I mean, it's a, it's trying to be a quiver bike. It's trying to be an SB five and an SB 4.5 or there was a, it's like
0: a leggy trail bike.
1: Yes. It's either a leggy trail bike or a really, really ridiculously good cross country bike Yeah, because they're coming in, you know, the level one and level two are coming in sub 26 pounds. Yeah. I think my black incorporated weighed 24 and a half in a large. So, but that had envies and envy everything.
0: Yep. And the reason that we're putting so much emphasis on this is number one, obviously Steven, you're going to have the bikes, but also because we know, um, this is something we know about and we never pretend to talk about things we don't know about. Right. so we, um, you especially know these bikes inside and out. So we'll get into the details on the updates because the updates to the Jekyll and the trigger are pretty much the same. So we'll get into those details a little later on in the podcast, this episode. But the next thing to go to the Santa Cruz Nomad, there were some spy photos released of a prototype yeah. that is out there. Well, we're assuming there I guess pink bike and everybody's assuming that this is a
1: v, the version 4 Nomad.
0: Yeah, and it's it's a prototype. And the thing that we yeah. for, that a lot of us forget is that brands are constantly testing yep. different prototypes. Absolutely. Uh, if I'm sure that if you spent some time, you know, around Morgan Hill, you'd see a lot of weird looking aluminum welded together like haphazard looking bikes because they're testing things out. Uh, it's specialized or if you were doing the same thing and you were in golden Colorado for Yeti, (gasps) it'd be the same thing. Yeah. So that's, I guess that it's, it's constantly happening. But the interesting thing is this does look more like a V 10. Yes. Rear suspension system than the current VPP that they have. Of course. And that's the question I have though, is I think that
1: photo was strategically taken at that angle, mm. because you notice that the chain ring and crank set covers everything on that lower pivot.
0: Yeah, you don't see where that what that lower pivot actually looks yeah. like.
1: Because and if it's anything like the the V10, it's not going to be like your typical VPP. No, it won't be. Yeah,
0: yeah, and, and I almost <clears throat> wonder though if that would provide you know like because the one thing the v 10s known for is or not known for I should say is its ability to pedal. I mean, it's a downhill bike, but. Still, it's 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 a it's a plush bike. Yeah. So I mean, there are wonders that you can do with a shock. I mean, looking at the shock that they have on there, it's got some really small volume on it. Uh, that's one thing I can see. So I don't know if maybe that's something that they've got going on. Who knows? But um, and may so maybe if it's a smaller volume shock, that means that maybe they have a more linear design to it. I guess
1: which would be in line with a V10.
0: Yeah. So my sense. only
1: concern would be that. If they're really trying to distinguish the Nomad as, you know, the ultimate descent mini park bike, enduro bike, whatever you want to say, it's climbing is going to suffer more than
0: it already does. You would think, right? Yeah. But then again, this is what Santa Cruz and other brands do. They test out different designs like this and they see what works. Yeah. All right. And the next bit of news comes from Specialized. They have their custom Stump Jumper webpage that they just put up where basically you can mix and match and kind of build up your own bike. It's like a build and build and, uh, and price a car tool, like a car website. Right. Um, I think it's pretty smart for a couple of reasons. So number one, I, I, I think we've all been waiting And, and some Ibis, for example, has had this on their site for a long time. Yeah. You've been able to do this and, and certain brands have that. But So it's been a long time coming. We're all kind of used to that model when shopping for cars, that type of a thing. But I think that this is a very important step to getting closer to um, being direct to consumer off the website. Absolutely. I think this is like a beta step for that, and certainly isn't being publicized as such. And I doubt that Specialized would ever, you know, want to say that that's what this is. But it certainly would get you closer to that.
1: Yeah. But I also like the idea. It's kind of like you know Project One with Trek, where they've allowed Mm -hmm. you to do that for a few years. I think you know Specialized is finally realizing the value in that. Yeah. You can have your own bike. You can have you know, uh, granted, there's only four colors of of Mm -hmm. choice and three suspension and two builds, but. I mean, overall, I think it's a good idea and it's kind of a segue into a new era of being able to just custom build whatever you want and not have to pay, you know, at a shop, it's right. gonna be more expensive to custom build a bike. Whereas if you can go straight to the manufacturer and do a custom build, even if it's through your dealer, which is how project one always was, yeah, great. That's actually pretty cool. I like it.
0: Yeah, me too. And and I think that I mean, Trek, I just knowing internally some things about how things worked there. I know that Project 1 in many respects was a beta for them doing direct to consumer. Oh, and I'm well. testing that out, yep. right? So <clears throat> this is just probably another step for them getting closer to that. Yep. So pretty cool to see. Um Rockshocks released their new one by reverb reverb remote, forgive me. Uh it looks like a shifter, but it is not a shifter. All it does is activate your dropper post. So no gone is the plunger. And now we have one that feels just like another sram shift pedal,
1: which is cool, but at the same time, the plunger you take the right one, put it under the left side, and it for me, that was always my favorite, and I loved the feel of it,, yep. so I'm sure that this thing feels really good, yeah, but I don't run reverbs
0: anymore, yeah it's <laughs> so, true, You don't yeah, so i I don't understand the outrage over the plunger either. I think that it functions just well, like, or just fine with my bike. I have just a weird setup where I can't have them underneath and it actually works out well because I'm on an XC bike. I've got a low stem. So I've got a low stack height and then I've got a stem that's inverted six degrees. So when I turn my bars, my controls can hit my frame. Yes. So if I had those plungers down there being metal and everything else, that would be something that could damage my frame. But yes. really, I don't have much of a choice anyway, because I have the X lock full sprint from RockShocks on my on my Yeti. So on my ASR. So basically that on my left side I have a plunger, one plunger, to rule them all, so to speak. But that one plunger locks the rear and locks the front. That's a double plunger. Yes. Yeah. But it's only one actual one plunger, but yeah. it operates both, yes. right? And so it's a little wider than a normal one. Yeah. And that one, then I can dial in the fork, how much I want it to be locked out. When I press that can't dial in the back. When I hit that plunger, it's nearly a hard tail. It's really locked out. But I, so that one's on top and I have no choice. The only way that one works is on top uh, and it meet and it mates up with a match or mix ma- matchmaker matchmaker. That's the thing. So that's what I have on the left and on the right I have my reverb dropper and it's on top too yeah. and it actually works really well. Well, and it has to be
1: because you have your shifter on the bottom of the right side. Exactly. So
0: And it actually works really well yeah. and I don't know if you could have made this co- this this cockpit that I have more clean and more simple.
1: No, it you know you me being the artist of cable management. Yeah, I'd have a hard time improving on how you set yours up. It would be nearly impossible.
0: Right. It took a lot of thought. And yeah. With that said, I I do like the idea of having like that other that other shift paddle down there. Would feel like you know somewhat similar, even though it's been a long time since I've been on a, a two by right. Yeah. But <clears throat> I. I think that overall this is good, but the big thing to me is this doesn't solve a lot of the problems that I have with the reverb. And that's kind of where I, you know, the buck stops there more or less. Cause the problems with the reverb really come down to the fact that the B1 was claimed to fix a lot of things. And my experience so far has not fixed those things. You've had the
1: exact same problems with your B one that you had with your A two.
0: Yep, and a lot of people have had the same things. And if anybody doesn't know what we're talking about, B one is that's just the nomenclature for the new version of the reverb. Yeah, there was the there
1: was the version. The original reverb was the version A. Number one. Yeah. And then they had the version A number two, mm-hmm. which was an update to the seal head assembly and a couple other updates. Then And that's when they also introduced the stealth version. Yeah. And then they did a full update to the internals, and there was a bunch of different improvements that they did supposedly to fix all of the A2 stuff with the version B number one or model one. Yeah. So,
0: and I don't actually see the benefit or the improvements there. So, you know, and it's funny because uh, looking at, sorry, really quick on this, but looking at the internals, it made sense. I thought that looking at this, it makes sense that they're solving the problems. Yeah. But I've had that. I've, I've had to send that dropper post back. Um, I have a new one. I don't have much confidence that this one is going to hold up. And a lot of other people, I mean, a lot of other people have had the same thing with the B ones. They've had to send them back. Yeah. And by the way, I'm a big rock shocks fanboy. Yeah. I like their suspension. I like everything else. Um, and I do like a lot of aspects about the reverb. Yeah. I love that. It's, it's so smooth feeling like, you know, the, the the post doesn't have a notchy feel or anything else like that. And it doesn't slam up hard. You can Mm -hmm. dial in, dial that in. It's,
1: I do love that about the reverb and, you know, I've had a few issues with the A2s originally. Hmm. My B1 that was on my first 5.5, yeah, no I never problems. had a single problem with it. Yeah, Most of the B1s I've never had a problem with. I actually just had a B1 come back from a friend of ours on his SB5, but he has, you know, close to 125 hours of use on it. That's so lot, it's man. going to Andy at Squish Dynamics right now for, you know, a full refresh because it's time. Yep yeah and that's normal. The thing that people don't understand about a lot of these uh, a lot of the posts is they are aware item. You have to rebuild them. It's not like they're just going to work forever right and be done. yeah, you know, you have to maintain them just like the rest of your suspension because essentially it is. yeah a suspension piece
0: it's someday and the crazy thing is we, I don't think that it needs to be a suspension piece. I think that we could have dropper posts that don't have seals that don't have anything else like that, and it could function just fine. So engineers get to work. Yeah. Make something that doesn't require that much maintenance. Yeah, it'd be—it's very possible. So true. We landed on the moon. I don't know if you know this, but that's yeah, all. Fair. Anything, yeah, anything's possible. So um, yes, and the one thing I also was hoping to see with this, by the way, was reverb. Uh, I was wishing that this lever was going to be cable actuated and that it was just going to go to the b- base of the reverb and you're going to hook something onto the base there. Kind of like that one remote can't remember who makes it, but somebody makes a cable remote with a little thingamajig, not connectamajig, but thingamajig. We're getting very particular with our scientific words here, but a little adapter that went to the base of the reverb. So you that, run cable all the way up and then yeah. it goes to, the high that volume. would be nice. Yeah. That would be super nice. So because
1: that's the worst thing about the reverb is a, on a performance level, in my opinion. And I did this at Downeyville two years ago. Is ripping the reverb hose off. Yeah, it's harder to rip a cable. Yep, off of a lever than it is to rip the reverb. You know, it, sorry, that's totally the true. worst part of it. But it's also the nicest part about it. That's what makes it smooth.
0: Yep. So yeah, catch twenty-two, as they say. Yep. With that, let's get into the questions. Question:
1: It's a ridiculous question. False. That's debatable. Questions?
0: Yes. (laughs) There are a a number of them, actually. You can submit them at mtbpodcast.com. Oh, crap. There's a bunch of them. There are. Let's get into Ryan's question first. He says, hi, I just subscribed to your mountain bike podcast and I'm enjoying uh, every bit of content. Awesome. Thank you, Ryan. Good to hear that. He says, I am getting more knowledge on this sport for sure, and I'm enjoying more and more uh, riding on my bike. I don't really have a question, but I just want to hear a suggestion or advice from you because sometimes I am getting intimidated on big drop offs, uh, especially huge rocks. Uh, But what I've been trying to do is to session those segments and try to learn which line to take. I used to be a roadie, but I did a transition to mountain biking four months ago. And I am enjoying all the challenges and fun times with my friends. Have a great evening, Ryan. So, tips on big drops—well, relatively big, right? Yeah. We're not talking about ten foot or any specific amount. This could be a, a you know two curb height, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but tips on drops, even.
1: I think so. he's already got the idea with the sessioning. Um, the big thing is is commitment. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to get into a situation where you're doing like a, a roll off where. You're going to stick a front wheel if you chicken out and hit your brakes or, you know, that's in my opinion, really commitment is the big thing, but sessioning it as well. Just, you know, keep hitting it and keep at it. That's really what it boils down to. Yeah. Um, every situation's a little bit different and every rider rides a little bit different. My way of going down most drops, if I'm not sure about it, I just manual down it. I'll just pull the front wheel off the ground so I know I don't stick my front wheel. Yeah. And that's how I'll do it. Yeah. And then I'll worry about jumping, you know, off that drop later. Right. So, um, and you'd be surprised. It's hard to stick a front wheel on a lot of drops, you know. So you can pretty much go off of anything and not worry about it as long as enough of your weight is off that front end.
0: Yeah, I was going to say the key skill for you to learn, Ryan, would be manualing. Yeah. And you, I'm not saying you have to manual for any extended period of time. I'm just talking about being comfortable with pulling your front end front wheel up. And you know, not instantly dropping it, but pulling that front wheel up with your weight shifted back, and being in a position where you can at least maintain that for a foot or something on the ground. Yeah. And if you can do that, that means that you're probably getting the movement more or less correct about what you need to do when you ride off of those ledges. Yes. The worst thing you could do is bunny hop like a clipped in roadie, right? Yeah. And to pick up in the back and pick up in the front. Yeah. That's a really bad thing. So uh, when you bunny hop and, and Ryan Leach, I don't want to. Give away anything here, but you guys should go check out Ryan Leach. Uh, he has, uh, it's R Y A N, and then I think we talked about this on the podcast we before. before. But Leach, L E E C H. He is an incredible trials writer and has an awesome set of skills videos they it's uh you you pay for access to them to like this to get all of them and it's worth it like i know that we're not used to paying for things on the internet these days but it's worth it and one of the ones he has is he talks about like you know or he, he has ones on bunny hopping ones on wheeling one and everything and in the manualing one he works a lot on the proper body positioning and just takes it step by step by step and it really helps so i would recommend that for anybody that has any type of hesitation with that
1: I wonder if Ryan Leach is related to the lifestyles of the rich and famous
0: guy. Why do you say that? Robin Leach, man. Oh yeah. There you go. Come on. I'm sorry. Old school on. Yeah. You're you're a good point. Uh, let's move on. Brad's question.
1: Yes. Brad's question. We're going to get, we're in trouble guys. Yes. We're in trouble.
0: He says, I've only listened to four or five episodes, but the amount that you guys bash fat bikes is a bit pretentious and alienating. Ouch. He says, not all of us have the advantage of living in Colorado. Agreed. Neither do we. Yeah, neither do we. Yeah, it's true. And Colorado's um, great. Yeah, but we're, but Nevada's better. <laughs> but we know what you, we know what you're getting at there, Brad. Yes, we. Are. Um, we definitely do. He says, "Those of us that live in the frozen Midwest of Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Upper Michigan uh, have so much snow and ice that the only way to get it to ride and get to ride in the woods for months at a time is to use a wide tire." And Brad, get we, it.
1: We absolutely agree. Like we get it. We're not. The thing you need to understand is we're not bashing fat bikes on a pretentious level yeah we're not trying to alienate you it's actually very similar to how we make fun of cyclocross we love cyclocross we do cyclocross we race it and we make fun of it all the time yeah so with fat bikes i think it's more of a like we don't want to be pretentious towards you and we're sorry that that's you know how you've taken it but we are just looking at the ridiculousness of a fat bike and i say ridiculousness in a good way like that's
0: don't get me wrong. Who would have thought that we would have bicycles with this fat of tires, right? Yeah. Like who, who thought we could ride
1: these things around in, in powder on snow? Like it's ridiculous. It's That's awesome. What we're talking they're about. great. Yep. They they are they're like Kurt Gensheimer, angry single speeder always says, "There's a tool for every job," yeah. and you know what? Brad, you happen to live in an area where the tool that you need for six, seven, eight months out of the year is a fat bike, and yeah. that's actually awesome that you have that access.
0: Yeah, no, it's great, and and that's another thing. I mean, right here in the Tahoe area, this year they had um, like a, a couple fat bike series. They had a fat bike enduro. Yeah, they had the, the fat enduro. That was, yeah. um,
1: no, that's actually the ninth. That's coming up this weekend. Oh, that's right. It's April 9th. Yes. Yeah. So um, Clint Klassen and Jen Klassen, um, SAC Cyclocross Series, um, he's a CES to, enduro guy. They're and supposed to get four to six feet of snow at upper elevations yeah. this weekend. And too. so they're going to have a fat bike enduro this, uh, Sunday. in the snow. Yeah. Well, it's Sunday should
0: be good weather actually yeah. by then. So it's Sunday the ninth. Fresh I don't even know anymore. Who knows? Whatever. Um, and then he says, perhaps you should come race the great lakes, fat bike series and come show us how lame we all are in our stupid fat bikes. No, Brad, not at all. And we'd be happy to come out and race that, but we don't think that you're lame. And we don't think that your fat bikes are stupid. we, it's, it's just, it's just a joke. And I'm sure that you're probably, you've caught on to this. It's almost like a, a cultural thing to kind of clown on fat bikes, Yeah, even though everybody kind of wishes they had a fat bike to ride it's, one. It's kind of like the moped. Yeah. You know, like nobody wants to admit that they love riding mopeds, <laughs> exactly. but everybody loves riding mopeds. Exactly. Yeah. So Brad, you're doing the right thing. Um, and sorry, we came off as being pretentious. Certainly don't mean that, mean it that way. So ride on whether your tires are skinny or fat. Uh, Tasha says hi. I've been racing hair scrambles for around the last year. Just to update everybody, that's not where you actually like put scrambled eggs in your hair or actually scramble your hair. That's a motocross. Or you thing. don't go kill a rabbit and scramble it. Yeah, yeah. Or I should say not necessarily motocross, but that's a dirt bike thing. Yes. So it's a format of off-road racing, and in the world of dirt bikes, off-road me off-road means that you are not doing motocross or supercross. Uh, it's usually some type of it may be point to point, it may be long loops. Um, it may be an enduro format with multiple stages, but it's a lot of woods riding, desert riding, more point-to-point trail riding yes. stuff, right? And hair scrambles are actually races where they have like mass start events and they have to go from like waypoint to waypoints. Pretty pretty gnarly. I've done one before. Okay. I've raced countless motocross races and stuff and, and arena cross, but done one hair scramble. It was I think 12 degrees when we started. Sounds about right. It was out in a place called Fernley, Nevada. Well, actually, outside of Fernley, Nevada, in a place called Nightingale, Nevada. Oh, Nightingale. Even yep. better. That's 30 miles out of nowhere. Yes. Yeah. So they we're talking the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And if anybody's driven I eighty in between Reno and Salt Lake City, you've driven past this place. Yeah, Nightingale's like an exit with a couple dilapidated buildings. Yes, and it's
1: about um, what forty miles, fifty miles from Lovelock.
0: Yeah, yeah. So just middle of nowhere. Yeah, twelve degrees. Everything had a thin layer of ice and snow on it from a like a freezing rainstorm that came through the night before. And uh, I was riding a bike that wasn't mine, and it was cold, and it was miserable. And there were icicles hanging off of my motorcycle when I started it. And it was gnarly, man. There was one point where we were going up this snow covered hill, just covered in rocks sliding all over the place. Sorry for going off on a tangent here, but we dropped off of that hill and it was just crazy because you had zero traction. You're going down this hill, just wide open. And then we dropped into a sand wash. Yeah. And I was sixth gear. This bike had six gears It's a KTM, sixth gear wide open, which is probably about 70 miles an hour, Mm -hmm. 70 miles an hour through this sand wash, not letting off, just drifting through this thing and finding pockets where it was completely frozen. Like it was like a, you know, frozen sand, imagine. And then you drop through and you'd hit soft sand and it was like harsh hitting curbs in between every time you transitioned. Yeah. It was sketchy. Yeah. So uh, Tasha, you are an absolute legend racing that type of stuff. We applaud you. Yes. (laughs) She says, I've been riding my mountain bike more and and I've been riding my mountain bike more and I've been considering racing. Are there similarities of riding trails on both a dirt bike and a mountain bike? What should I adjust as far as riding or as far as differences in riding? Uh, What should I bring from dirt bike trail riding to mountain bikes? Thank you.
1: The big thing I think Tasha, um, that you're going to have to understand is you don't have the throttle anymore to throw your bike around. It's all on you now.
0: And That's, to correct. And to correct. That's the big thing. So us motocross riders, um, we, it's not as if like you just, Oh, I'm in trouble. I'd go wide open and things work out. Not at all. But you use power to adjust how your bike is handling. Yeah. It's uh, you don't use that power to just spin the rear wheel you use it to increase tension in the chassis. Mm-hmm. You use it to manage traction for sure, but then you also use it to be able to shift your body weight effectively, whether that's fore or aft, whatever it is. It's power is is everything for us. It and is. on a on a dirt bike and you realize very quickly on a bicycle that you don't have that. You don't
1: have that. So no. you you basically instantly lose one tool in your shed to the most control the bike. Powerful tool, you, no pun intended, but the most powerful tool that you have. Yeah. Um, so but beyond that, you know, really the fitness level, especially hair scrambler type stuff, you know, you're going to mm-hmm. carry all of that knowledge over. Yeah. Um, and you know, I grew up riding dirt bikes too, and you know, and doing BMX and then later on downhill and you know, general mountain biking. Um, I think really what it boils down to, I, I think personally Tasha is going to have a lot more fun doing the enduro format versus Great. something else, but I think she should try
0: everything, try XC, try, try downhill. Yeah try everything. Uh, and yeah, probably enduro fit a little more, Uh, some things that stick out and things that I carry over, um, with, uh, don't lose your, um, comfort with speed. You won't lose that, but remember that that is probably one of the most powerful tools that you have of all the quivers in your arrow or in all the arrows in your quiver. That one is the, the one that you'll be able to use. That's the sharpest one, so to speak. Yeah. And a lot of mountain bikers, forever will not be as comfortable with speed as you will be because you are familiar with handling a machine like that, a two wheeled machine at a much different scale than they are.
1: Just remember you have at more speed on a mountain bike, you have more gyroscopic force, keeping your bike upright, keeping your bike on its current path of velocity that it's going. So just remember that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, if you carry more, if you remember that and carry speed, that's going to really help you. Doing hair scrambles, you know about line choice. And it, you think a lot of people think that dirt bikers and they come over to mountain bikes just plow through whatever because they're used to big tires and power and everything else and that's couldn't be further from the truth yeah. dirt bikers are forced to pick to, to be very judicious about line selection and if you aren't you simply are not a good rider that is the difference between the guys that are at the front and the guys that are in the back one may actually be a faster rider in some respects more technically capable whatever you want to say yeah. but if he doesn't utilize if he doesn't have good line choice then he's going to be slow Yeah. So that's going to be something that you'll be able to carry over. Some things that you are going to have to adjust. Um, uh, so this is slightly carry over, slightly adjust your body English. As uh, on a motorcycle, we use that a lot because we have a very heavy, stable object to which we can anchor our body. So you use your, you throw your body around quite a lot to be able to manipulate that bike and how it handles. Yes, you can't do that to the same degree on a bicycle. No, you if have to you, be more finesse about it. Yes, and if you do move around, especially when we're talking about moving fore and aft on the bike you'll find yourself, if you move around the same way, you'll find yourself in a whole world of hurt a yes. lot because you'll be waiting the back when you probably shouldn't be waiting the back as much. Your front end gets light. And when you're going through a technical section, you won't have the control you need over it. Yeah. Um, and then obviously going over the front is just not a good thing, but so you're going to want to adjust how active you are on the bike. Mm-hmm. And if you have a 29er that will allow you to retain a little bit more of that, which will be good. Yeah. Um, and then I'd say that, uh, one other thing is when you're going through corners, um, something that is definitely become more common with four strokes instead of two strokes, uh, but good riders, uh, we're talking, you know, fast racers and four strokes and they come into turns, they are not just jamming on the brakes and then on the throttle instantly in two stroke days. That's how you rode. Yeah. Right. But not with four strokes, you are braking coming in and they're still braking through the end through the entry point of the turn, but there's actually an effective amount of coasting that goes on while they settle their bike into that rut and they actually end up carrying more speed yes. through that turn. And, uh, it's kind of a, it's, it gives you your, you time to kind of settle your body down and everything else as a mountain bike. You never leave that coast. Yeah. It continues. You don't have the power to make your bike settle back into that rut or line and pull out. So you really end up having to develop a really fine tuned connection between what your tires are doing and what you are doing. Cause there's no power to just throw all that out the so it's window. retention
1: of kinetic energy.
0: Yep, exactly. Yeah. That's the technical aspect yeah. of it
1: um the one thing that i will also add to this mm-hmm. is you need to be more um i guess more okay with more confined space tighter lines okay. so when yeah. i was when i was up at whistler um mm-hmm. in 2014 for crankworks um i was riding and just happened to end up riding with um an unnamed motocross legend whose name rhymes with travis pastrana
2: okay yeah, um,
1: yeah. <laughs> and he goes up usually to crankworks and does like the A-Line race. Yeah. Big, wide open motocross style yep. course. I couldn't keep up with him on that. Right. Get him on Dirt Merchant, and I walked away from him. Yep. So you have to be very, very careful and very, you know, okay with being in a lot tighter places than you would be on your motorcycle. Yep. Unless you do heavily wooded type hair scramblers, that's the right. only thing. So if you're already there, then great. That's a carryover. Yep. So.
0: Yeah that kind of covers it. So, uh, and also mountain bikers or dirt bikers coming into mountain bikes, a big myth that everybody thinks that they're just a master at technical things. We suck at slow technical things. Yes. What we're good at is fast. doesn't matter if it's technical or not. We're good at fast. Yeah. But in terms of technical things, nope, not good. That's where we suck because yeah. we use power in those situations to go through things and you suddenly don't have power. So uh, yeah, myth dispelled or busted, if you will. Uh, let's go into Buckeye's question, which is a solid name, by the way. Definitely. He says, I will hold. What my- he's from Ohio. I wonder. Yeah. I will hold my five star rating hostage unless you answer this question. We'll consider it released yeah. at this point. Five stars yeah. now. <laughs> he <laughs> says, I'm 5'10, 215 pounds, down from 245. Whoop, ride to live. Nice job, man. Good That's job. good. Yeah. He says, I've been riding since the mid 90s. I'm 53 years old and have just started to ride more than once a week. I'm at about three times a week or just above because it really has helped me with my weight loss. Your training tips have been very helpful as well. Good to hear, man. That's cool. Uh, he says, my question is listening to trail peaks, uh, specialized review and that's a YouTube channel online. He says last week of the 29 and 27, five specialized enduro. I was really surprised to hear. I have the same issue with my 2017 stumpy carbon expert 650 B that is, I feel like I'm riding too far forward. I think that is how I would describe it. And he's talking about when he's actually pedaling. He says, don't get me wrong. I absolutely love this bike. I've tried moving the seat back as far as it goes, but I find myself always sitting too far forward on the saddle. I am sure if I could just sit up a bit more, like a larger rise bar or higher angle stem, it would be all I need to feel more comfortable. What do you guys suggest? By the way, best mountain bike podcast ever. So nice not to hear an F-bomb every 15 seconds. That's that's awesome. I'm glad. Like, yeah. Because we, we, I mean, I, I, I don't cuss. Um, that so it's not hard for me. But I don't either. Y- you don't cuss a lot either. I, I do sometimes. That's not, not true. <laughs> but you make a concerted effort not to do it too. And I figure that you know your kids are listening in the car. And also, there's no real need for that. We're just talking about bikes, right? So, anywho, good to hear that. Uh, so, some things that I think of with this the key is we're talking about relation to the bottom bracket. Of course. That's the important thing. Where your saddle is at in relation to your bottom bracket. If you think about it, your handlebars can move fore and aft and up and down with risers, with a stem, or with a riser bar. Or I shouldn't say risers. I should say spacers, a stem, or a riser bar. You can move your handlebars fore and aft and then you can also move them up and down. You can move your saddle fore and aft, up and down. Granted, there are limitations in each direction with this, but you cannot change where your bottom bracket is. The only thing that you can change with that is Q factor by getting pedals that are either narrower or wider or moving your cleats, or you can change your crank length. But that's it. Yep. You can't move your cranks. Nope. So when you're talking about bike fit, everything should be done in relation to your bottom bracket because that's a fixed point. Yes. So everything should. I mean, that is the that. fixed
1: point on your bike.
0: Yes. So everything else, especially if you're riding a fixed gear, I'm throwing horns right now. You can't yeah. see it, but it, if it if you do that, that means that you are going to be sitting in the proper place in relation to your bottom bracket if you know where your ideal spot is. And then if you work that out, where your, where your hips are in relation to that, then you can work on where your bars are. I do not think a good strategy for this person would be to raise their bars. So no. Buckeye, I wouldn't raise your bars and move them back because then you're just going to have a, you know, you're going to be raising your center of mass effectively with that because you're going to be holding up higher on that bike. It's going to make the bike, uh, not handle as well. It's going to be harder to put weight on the front and get traction like you want uh, when you're going downhill. So he says in this case that he feels like he's too far forward. He says, I've tried to move the seat back as far as it goes, pay attention to this, but find myself always sitting too far forward on the saddle. So that's an interesting bit of information to me right there. When people are under duress, when they're pedaling hard, they move forward on the saddle, right? When you are not climbing hard, you generally sit back more. Your sit bones want to be anchored in that saddle, Yes. right? So we're more and more what we're seeing is mountain bikes are making their seat tube angles more upright yes so they're not as far leaning back that is different from what a lot of us have gotten used to over the past 10 years where your saddle is further back behind the bottom bracket um in your case if you feel like your hands are too close to your knees then yes maybe you need to get i would say a larger size frame is a better fix than a longer stem yeah that said easier said than done right that's changing your whole bike
1: $80 stem versus $2,000 frame
0: yeah yeah. the only difficulty with getting a longer stem is that that puts you over the front of the bike more when you're descending which might not be good of course and also it will affect steering um but in this case if you put the saddle back to if you're trying to put the saddle back super far too but you find yourself leaning forward on that or getting to the front end of that saddle. I I just think that you have, reading this, I feel like you have a frame that's probably a little bit too small.
1: I would agree, but I also look at it and I'm like, okay, well, if he wants to get further back, so he moves the saddle back, and then he's constantly pulling forward on the saddle, that means that it's too much. Yeah. So I don't know if it's too small of a frame. This might be, you know, I don't know how long he's owned Um, his specialized. I don't know how, you know, it's a 2017, so it's clearly new. I wonder if either that's just the wrong bike for him or if it's something he needs to get, you know, used to. Like one of our previous questions was, you know, hey, I don't feel as comfortable on my bike. Hey, bikes always take you getting used to. Yeah. But, you know, this could be a bunch of little things.
0: He says he's 5'10", 215 pounds, but he doesn't say exactly what size bike. I mean, he should be on a large. Yeah, if F5-10 you're on a, on a specialized, yeah, if you're on a medium, then it's probably too small, especially with the Stumpy and the Enduro, those things are pretty small size. And they so already so. come and they already even come
1: with a you know, they come with like a 50 or 55 stem with a six degree rise. Yeah, you know, the stock bars that are on it, I believe, are an eight degree back sweep and a six degree up sweep, so it should be nice and comfortable on your wrists. Um, I don't think. Yeah, I don't see anything with the setup of the
0: bike that would be off. It seems like a. It might just to... be,
1: you know, just my. I think it might be just the wrong bike for him.
0: Potentially, yeah. Yeah, yeah it all depends. Um, I personally, like we talked about last week, I have my, you know, I have a zero setback seat post with my seat moved all the way forward. Yeah. And I, I find that that's good. Really, when we're talking about this and talking about bike fit, you really, once again, going back to what I said earlier, You want to make sure that you're judging everything based off of that bottom bracket point being fixed. Yeah. Look at the reach to try to find out what size bike you need. And then after that, after you find out what size bike you need, then get into how you'll be moving things around. So, and also just, it goes, I, hopefully this helps, but I mean, I'm, when I move my saddle, it's pretty small increments, man. I'm moving, you know, five millimeters at max each time. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you don't have to move very far. So. Uh, Giles says, Hey, love the podcast. Excellent work. Very professional in every sense. Five stars, hands down. Thanks, Giles. Appreciate it. He says, quick question. I raced Sonomas last weekend, which destroyed my bike. That's a race that goes on up in Sonoma County. And it has a lot of river crossings. And this year they have a lot of water. So that made it even worse. He says, I had not researched the race and did not realize there would be so much mud and creek river crossings. By mile 30, my drivetrain had turned into a stiff, creaking metal machine that was better at crushing sand and gravel than propelling me uphill. Good. Painful to listen to and even more painful to ride. If you were riding in these conditions, what would you have used for the drivetrain? Anything special I should do with the bike after a ride and actually let's cover the drivetrain part first. What would you have done leading up to that race for that?
1: Uh, the first thing I would have done is I would have found the heaviest wet lube I can find. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a new Pedro's just released their new stuff a few months ago, and their new um, they've got a new heavy wet lube that is phenomenal. Good. And also, um, this is kicking it old school, um, Narlube. You know, yeah. they were around there. I bought one of the big um, the Honey Bears of the Narbear Blue yeah. wet lube one of the best wet lubes I've ever used. Yeah. It keeps everything out and keeps everything quiet.
0: You want something that isn't water soluble, isn't yeah. going to wash off like that.
1: You want a really heavy lube for something like that. You cannot use a bow shield T nine or yeah. a demon or anything like that. Bow shield.
0: Yeah. I hate that lube. Yeah.
1: It works great for about five miles on a mountain. <laughs> yeah, no, it's the most a, amazing stuff on a road bike for 30 miles. Yeah, but max. After that, yeah. Yeah. Um, So yeah, so you really, uh, that's all. You need a heavier, heavier lube and make sure everything is perfectly clean before. Yeah. And I'm talking soaking your chain in gas for a couple days, then letting it, you know, clean and yeah. dry
0: and or then acetone, it. acetone something, yeah, like something like that that'll really strip it. Yeah, you know? he says anything special I should do with the bike after a ride like this? Then the usual cleaning, etc. Due to all the water crossings and mud, uh, he says a ride of twenty seventeen Kendall Scalpel Si for reference. Thanks, Giles. Um, I'm going to tell you right now,
1: you need to strip the bike down to a bare frame. Um, suspension, probably don't need a whole lot of work, but your BB30 bearings in that, they're probably (laughs) junk, so just put a new set in. They're nice and cheap. Um, I personally would not get a stock set of FSA or um, uh, Enduro bearings or anything like that. I would go to your local, you know, if you've got a local bearing supply house, the brand Ezo is a Japanese bearing company. You can get the sixty-eight hundred six bearing, which is the BB, mm-hmm. you know BB thirty bearing. Those are what we use. They, I think, they cost around fifteen bucks a piece, and they are a solid replacement for any BB thirty bottom bracket. And yep. they spin smoother and they last way longer than any of the bicycle brands. I can attest to that. Yeah. Yep. So use EZO bearings. Find the sixty-eight hundred sixes. You can probably find them online at Amazon or you know wherever. But bottom bracket bearings for sure. Um, clean your whatever
0: wheels you have. Clean your cassette free body. And I would take um I would I would take the tires off your wheels and everything else because in races like that too you might have. Burped something or gotten some grime in between your bead, your bead and your rim. Yeah, just take it, take the tires off and clean them off really well too. Yeah. There, so. take your
1: cassette off. You need to get everything out of there. You're yes. talking, you know, a stiff bristled brush and acetone or gasoline. Clean your cassette unless it's an XTR with the carbon carrier. Don't do that. That's yeah. bad. Yeah, um, but as long as it's all metal, throw it in acetone or what you know your yep. choice of cleaner. Scrub the crap out of it. Same with your chain. Same with your chain ring pulleys on your derailleur. <clears throat> Jockey pulleys on the derailleur.
0: Every take them off, clean them. Yeah, make sure everything's
1: spinning really clean. And if I were you, I would probably, especially after Sonomas, um, I would almost consider recabling and rehousing everything on the bike. Yep. What? Well, so obviously, just rear derailleur. If it's yes. an Si, if it's a uh, scalpel,
0: it's worth it. Yeah. It's worth checking into. Yep. So. Uh, then from Kevin and Kevin, you sent in a couple questions, your nutrition one, we're going to cover it at some point and actually have a whole episode dedicated to that. But, yes. uh, your question, ovalized chain rings, my first mountain bike had Shimano biopace rings, but that craze passed fairly quickly. Now they're back. What's the big deal?
1: Well, first of all, Biopace is very different from the new oval. Yeah. It's actually the inverse of yes. the new oval.
0: And and here's the thing with oval chain rings: um, if you get like a, um, if you look at Osymmetric, Osymmetric is a brand that makes rings that vary in their profile of oval. Like some of them pretty much go to a rectangle and a tall rectangle. Okay, um, they have a bunch of different profiles. And Rotor is another brand where it actually has different mount points. So you can change exactly where that thing sits. Yeah. That's so, where your power stroke is. Exactly. Uh, there are different theories on this. So I use an absolute black oval ring and we're going to go over some physiological theories really quick. And then I'm going to tell you all, all, why all of that is bogus. But firstly, so <laughs> the theory is that you have, if you're looking at a clock and you're looking at your pedal stroke from the side, you have more power most power, I should say, from about one o'clock all the way down around, and you're talking to about four o'clock, right? Maybe getting to five in that That's area. When you start
1: sweeping and you start diminishing your torque output. It's exactly right. Yeah. Or your so power when, output, torque delivery.
0: Yep, exactly. So when your power, your ability to produce power decreases as you get run through that spectrum there and you get to the back, the old thought process. Was that you would actually the oval was shifted so that it made it easier to pedal during that stage, and then harder to pedal through the rest because they were trying to smooth things out, if you will, right? Okay. Now that is silly because basically what that's doing is that's going to require a greater toll on your muscles where they aren't as effective at outputting power. So
1: now you're pulling your your foot up through the hardest part of the pedal stroke.
0: Yes. Now absolute black that's the chain ring that i use uh there are a number of different options most of them are doing the opposite they're placing the oval in orientation so that it utilizes that extra that that spot where you have the most ability to output power that's where it feels harder to pedal that's where the chain ring is effectively larger
1: and so the, during your power stroke
0: you have a 36 or 38 tooth chain ring yep and then in the backstroke, you're going to be dropping down to a 34, 32, yeah. maybe even, depending yeah. on how severe that oval is. Yes. So you're talking about a jump plus or minus two with the absolute black. Yeah. So the that makes a little more sense because you're utilizing things. But here's why all of that is silly. Because your body is going to train, be trained and you're going to have muscular recruitment patterns and everything else to operate how it's going to operate. Yep. And you will adapt. Mm-hmm. And sure, what you'll probably notice is some type of a difference in power output when you first use this. And you could probably graph pedaling efficiency or smoothness, and you could see that one would be more efficient in one direction or another. But in the end, your body is going to operate the way it's going to operate, it's going to turn pedals. And the limiting factor we're talking about, you know, we're talking metabolic demands, we're talking about very different things. Uh, that are going to be limiting you from pedaling, turning those pedals more effectively. Of course. So, the one thing that makes sense with oval rings to me is and really nothing to do with road riding, it's to do with mountain biking. Theoretically, how the absolute black chain ring works, it would smooth out your torque delivery. Yes. Theoretically. So, it would increase traction. Yes. And it would eliminate traction spikes,
1: which decrease overall traction.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And then it would also, theoretically, also if it's keeping more even tension on the drivetrain and everything else, then it could also help against pedal bob, right? If you're having something like that. Partially. Could. Could.
1: Could. could potentially
0: yep. So those are the two benefits that I could see with an oval ring there.
2: Yeah,
0: um, it's not Biopace, and the thing with oval rings is that there's a lot of snake oil marketing behind it, right? Um, from Biopace all the way up to now, yeah. still a lot of it. Yep. Um, but the one thing is, um, I've I use it on my bike. I haven't used a round ring on my bike though, so I can't tell you if it works better. Yeah. So I've only used oval rings, and I'm of
1: the of the philosophy that. I like my chain rings like my donuts, round and covered in rainbow sprinkles. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Let's
0: go into the last question from Ray. He says, "Uh, you know you're doing something right when people listen to the same podcast multiple times. (laughs) Good to hear. He says, thanks for what you do. You mentioned taking the time to adjust high and low speed compression. Could you explain the terrain and speed for both that you aim for in order to get the right tune? I've tried and gave up at the middle of the road for both because I couldn't really feel a difference. So, Ray, the big thing that you need to understand about low and high
1: speed, it has nothing to do with the speed of your bike. What that is, they're talking about shaft speed of your suspension. So if you're talking high and low speed compression adjustment, I'm going to just venture to guess you're talking about a 36 RC2 from Fox or, um, you know, one of the other brands that has the dual speed control on your fork. What they're talking about with high speed versus low speed. Low speed is when you're standing up, pumping, pedaling on a climb, low speed is that shaft speed of your front end bouncing while you are climbing.
0: When we're talking about uh, traveling, if you think about low speed versus high speed, low speed... Is the fork traveling through or moving through its travel at a lower speed? A lower speed. Yes. High speed compression is the fork moving through its travel at a higher speed. Yeah. So, so think rapid bumps, yeah, uh, hits anything else yeah. like that.
1: So like washboarded out trail or lots of little rocks or just a big rock garden or even a big drop in a bike park. Yep. Those are high speed compression situations.
0: Yes. And, and also on the drop part of things, high-speed compression takes care of the initial part, and then low-speed compression usually t- comes takes into play over the right bottom after
1: part, that. Because shaft speed starts to slow down, and yep. you, dent, you then close that spring that allows yep. the blow-by into the high-speed circuits. And I'm getting pretty – like, that's kind of technical. Right. But the thing you have to understand is that means there's two different oil paths that can be taken through that fork. Mm-hmm. And the blow-by – after the low speed has taken over, if it's too much, you know, uh, oil velocity moving through the valves, it will open a separate valve based on spring pressure and allow it to go through a completely separate circuit, which is your high speed. Yep. Now it's constantly moving back and forth between them, but yep. in general, the way that you think about it, you're standing up, pedaling, cranking out, you know, at a high speed in an enduro segment, yep. that is going to be a low speed compression situation. Yeah. Or pumping, or uh, pumping into gen-
0: something like that. Corners. Yep.
1: Yeah. Uh, That's going to be low speed compression. So typically for me, I like to run more low speed compression because that also helps with bottom out on big hits.
0: Yep. It makes your bike feel more supportive.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. But it still allows for plushness, you know, in your initial, you know, based on spring pressure. Yep. Or air pressure for the spring. Yep. Then, when you talk about the high speed high speed compression, I like to go very, very light on my high speed compression. I don't want to feel anything under four inches in diameter right that my bike hits, yep, I want everything there because that's where arm pump comes from that's where you know that's where you tire yourself out, that's where your muscles you know just it's a disaster in the long run, yep, so I go really, really light, so the way that um, the way that my 36 RC2s are usually always set up, and this goes across the board for every bike I've ever owned, is my high-speed compression is usually four to five clicks from mm-hmm. full fast. Okay. So if you were to unscrew it counterclockwise all the way out, which is backwards yep. from how Fox counts it, yep. I go four or five clicks in, and that's it. And I do play with it depending on what I'm racing or what I'm riding. Right. Low-speed compression, I back it out all the way to the to the counterclockwise direction and I'm two or three clicks in. That is it. Yep. Rebound, I'm usually six or seven from full out. Yeah. I like fast rebound because I need that suspension to recruit quickly, mm-hmm. but not so quickly that it's jacking me, you know, or it's jacking back and I'm bouncing me off the trail. And because you like to party. And I like to party. Yep. Fast rebound, like to party.
0: Yes. So I like to run a little bit more high speed compression than Steven. So I like to have a constant constant fix on exactly what my bike is going over right okay and that said it comes at the cost of some fatigue right yeah but I don't have so much high speed compression that I start to lose traction that's the important thing because if you're running too much high speed compression it's your front tire is going to or I should say your front tire is going to have a harder time up front staying planted on the ground yeah. So you want to be running that balance that you want to strike is one where you feel like you still have traction um, but at the same time, it doesn't feel like you're, it's almost numb. Right. Yeah. And Steven, you have such a refined, or uh, you're, you're such a skilled rider. Steven, Thank you. That you know exactly you are, you're in tune with what your bike is doing. Yeah. And then that allows you to even run even less high speed compression, really work with that. Yeah. So, and I also like to run more low speed compression though. I like that to ramp up quickly. I like to have more support, everything else. Okay. So I like to have a firm bike that's underneath me. Yeah. Um, so Hopefully that gives you an idea. When you're talking about high speed compression, pay attention to how you are maintaining traction and what it feels like bumps into turns, that type of a thing. Yeah. Uh when you're talking about low speed compression, uh go to a section that has berms that you're pumping in and out of. Or when you're pedaling through things, if you feel like it is too bobbly and isn't supportive enough. Yeah. That's where you can find those out. If you're if you're going into a corner with braking bumps,
1: let's just just yep. as a scenario. Going into a corner with some braking bumps, the front end seems to want to skip out from under you. Your high speed compression is probably too much. Yep. You probably have to, you probably need to lighten your high speed compression up. Back down a bit. Back yep. down a bit. But then when you pump into the corner and you're going through the berm if your bike doesn't want to spring back, if it loads super hard, your low speed compression is not high enough. Mhm cuz you want that bike to give you some feedback. Some feedback. That's that yep. low speed through that berm. Yep. Then as you pump out of it if it just dissipates all that energy, if you load the bike up and it doesn't spring you out of that corner at all, at all, then your rebound is too high and you need to
0: soften your rebound because remember rebound Speed your rebound damp- up rebound damping is what you're adjusting yes we're not adjusting your springiness necessarily straightforward we're adjusting how much that is how much that is being controlled yes That's and the you important thing to and understand. if it's
1: not if it's just absorbing that into the corners you load it and not giving it back to you then you've then it is not letting that that air spring come back fast enough
0: your bike wants to party Yes. please allow it to party yes run the rebound a little faster
1: yeah. yeah and if this didn't answer your question fully then you can always Ray you can send us more like more detailed information on your bike bike setup and that goes for everybody you don't yeah. have to be vague about this you can tell us this is my bike this is my suspension
0: if you couldn't tell we're into details yes we are <laughs> yeah.
1: so I hope and, that helped Ray
0: yep mtbpodcast.com is where you can reach out yeah. send in your questions uh, for next week send in detailed stuff if you'd like to. With that, Stephen, Do we get the business. Let's go into the business. Business is business time. Is business? It's business time. First thing to take care of is the Cannondale Jekyll review. Okay. So, Stephen, run me through the changes that have happened to the Jekyll.
1: Okay. So, last version of the Jekyll was
0: actually. Let me run you through what the Jekyll was before. Because I don't really know, but this will make things interesting. Oh, this will be fun. So, uh, for and some by the reason, way, guys,
1: hold on, really yeah, quick, Jonathan.
0: Yeah. Jonathan already rode my
1: bike, as most yes. of you guys know. Yes, if you listen to our Instagram or my Instagram. Yep. Jonathan already rode my Jekyll. Yes. I haven't ridden it. Yes, but Jonathan also hasn't told me what he thought of the Jekyll.
0: Not yet. I, I withheld this information. And then the jerk
1: <laughs> gets back from that little mini ride. And I was dumb enough to let him go ride my new Yeti Yeah, that I haven't ridden either. This is good. And I don't know the review on either one of them. Nope. So this is news for all of us. Yes. Right it's going to be good. Yeah. Let's go.
0: So uh, the previous Jekyll, 2017 and prior. 2016, 2016 prior. They didn't and technically prior. have a 2017. Ah, okay. So 2016 and prior yeah. had a tragic accident where it lost half of its fork and yes. it only had one half left and they call it a lefty because it was on the left side okay. or it was the only one left, one okay. of the two. We don't Fair. know. Then they, um, they got, they did some weird experimental drugs and they didn't know how a shock worked and it started pulling and they thought that was better than compressing. This is good. Okay. Okay. So they started doing that. Uh, and then they had also some crazy things where you could flip switches and it would change the ride height, all this stuff. But you know what? It all worked. It all did. So as crazy as it sounds, it worked really darn well. Yeah. Because uh, that's kind of I how mean, Cannondale does I mean, it's kind of one EWS. It's a dar- darn good bike, man. Yeah. So that was the previous one. Yes. There were some issues with that, though, Stephen. And you had that bike. So tell me what the, what issues, just what issues you had. Then we'll go into later how they fixed them.
1: So I actually raced for Cannondale in 2015, and I had the 2015 Jekyll Carbon team. Okay. Um, by far one of the la- most laterally stiff chassis bikes I've ever ridden in my life. Okay. That bike did not move. There was no waggle in the back end through the pivots. That bike stayed planted and stayed on track better than anything I've ever ridden. And Mm -hmm. that includes any Yeti. Yep. Any Yeti. Yeah. That bike was phenomenal in that that sense. Yep. Um, The Lefty Fork, you know, I think... It had its, you know, the wave spring issues where after like 75 hours, you would all of a sudden be riding along and it would just dip halfway into its travel and just stay there and be locked out. And then it'd pop back and it'd go back and forth. And basically the bottom out assembly had this little metal wave spring that after 75, 200 hours, every single one of them broke. So they made it a mandatory thing where they were just sending out replacements of this bottom out assembly and they made it part of their maintenance. Well, the problem is it's a full fork rebuild to replace that. So it's a pain in the butt. And nobody yeah. wants to fully rebuild their fork every 75 hours. Yep. Not at all. And some people it was happening down to 50 hours. I think, you know, Amy Morrison on hers, because she raced one in 2015 as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she uh there was one time where I did it at one race and two races later it was already it already broke. Yeah. So so that was an issue with the lefty. Okay. But other than that, the first time I rode that bike, I pushed it into a corner, and it steered quicker and more precise than any Fox Fork I've ever ridden. I almost put myself
0: into the dirt on the inside of the berm because it, like, it I steered so left, strong. and it went left. And instantly. it is and it is measurably stiffer- Yes. Measurably stiffer than yes. what other forks out there
1: on the market. And, and anybody who says that they ride different and they constantly steer to the left, they're wrong. That's I mean, not true. And if you think about it, a lot of people don't like to trust the lefty. Well, you should probably never fly in an airplane either yeah. because <laughs> guess what? They all have lefties. Yeah. Every single, <laughs> every true. single strut on every single landing gear on every single airplane a is a lefty. lefty.
0: That's true. Unless it's on
1: the left and it's a righty. Yeah. But either way, that's <laughs> yeah, just true. a lefty spin around the other yeah, way.
0: Exactly. So, um,
1: then the dyad, you know, the dyad was a very, very over-engineered, ingenious design of a shock. Yeah, What it allowed for was an attitude adjust system is what they called it. And it was called, um, elevate and flow back in, oh. you know, in that version.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And yes, it was a pull shock. It was, instead of being an eight and a half inch long shock that pulled two and a half inches, it was a Four and a half inch shock that pulled two and a half inches because they put the the whole shaft assembly in between both of the air ch- chambers right and damper bodies. So yeah. they basically instead of elongating the shock, they sh- made it short and wider. Yeah, and it worked really well. It gave the bike a lower center of gravity. Um, and in function, it was the most tunable rear shock I've ever worked with until the float X2 came out and a lot of these four way adjustables, because you could completely dial, you had two different Schrader valves, one for the positive chamber, one for the negative chamber. And it actually allowed you to dial in your balance between positive and negative. Whereas all of your push style shocks are self-equalizing. So you're stuck with that negative chamber wherever Fox decided they want it or wherever the Debonair air can on RockShox allowed it or whatever. With the dyad, you could completely tune it however you wanted. So what was the problem with the dyad or with that rear suspension whole design? the, The problem with the dyad in general was that air... When if you bottomed that shock out too hard, if you weren't really good at adju- at adjusting the positive and negative chambers, mm-hmm. then the bike felt ridiculously harsh all the time.
0: Mm, no matter okay. what you
1: did with your rebound and compression controls, it just felt harsh all the time. right. But if you set it up correctly and you were at the thirty five percent sag and you got it to where everything was dialed in, it was perfect. But if you bottom that suspension out too hard. One of the notorious things that they did was there was one oil seal that just wasn't up to the task of keeping air in the negative chamber and it would plow air past the oil ring system or the O-ring system and it would go into the, the oil circuits. Yikes. And that's bad because then the shock sits into travel all the time. Right. And if anybody, if you're familiar with bottoming out a Fox shock, the same thing happens. Well, with a Fox shock, you literally just unscrew the air can, pop it off, yeah. and all of that's fixed, throw it back together, and you're good. With a Dyad, it has to go back to Fox. Yeah, Fox would never sell the tools to even work on those to any bike shop.
0: You had to send
1: it back to Fox. So yeah. if the shock was set up right and you didn't have any issues, it was a phenomenal shock. So let's talk about the ride characteristics. What, what things did you want to improve? The only the thing one. that I wanted to improve on the Jekyll was I felt like the bike really was a two-faced, it was it was a Jekyll and Hyde, which is yep. what they wanted it to be. Right. They wanted it to be a ridiculously good descender on one end, and they wanted it to climb really well on the other.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, the problem with the original Jekyll was it was a 160 mil travel down to 115 mil of travel. Right When you're in the 115 mil mode... It steepened the head tube over a degree. Yep. It brought the bottom bracket up almost three quarters of an inch, yep. which is big. A lot. The bikes t- felt totally different. Right. But I also felt like I was riding a full suspension cross country bike and then an enduro bike. There was nothing in between. So it was either savage descender or good climber. Yeah. There was nothing in the middle and there was no way to dial in kind of a meaty, a middle of the row, like a trail mode almost. Yeah. So Interesting. so okay. that was the one thing I would want to improve. I also wanted to see a shorter chainstay length. Which these one the the new bike is shorter. It, of course, yeah. So they did and they so and these are part of the fixes that, you know, I had voiced. Yeah. Um and you know, I'm not saying that my word was, you know, it had anything to do with it, but I'm sure a lot of people were feeling the same things that I was feeling. Right. Um the other thing that I felt was uh, there was a couple spots where the ballistic carbon that they use, which you know they do use a military grade carbon that when when they purchase it, they actually have to like you have to be approved to buy the carbon that they use. It's not like Terea, you know, T eight hundred or T nine hundred, where anybody can just go buy this stuff. Right. So that's kind of cool, but I think it's more of a marketing thing than anything. Right. But there's a couple spots where you know, like on the old Trigger Black Incorporated that you saw when I broke those chain stays, I think yes. they or seat stays. Yeah, I think they just made them a little bit too thin in certain spots to try to save weight. Right, but overall, a brutishly amazing bike.
0: Yep. Okay, so the new one, uh, they 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 fixed the fork thing, not by fixing the lefty yet. I assume that'll be fixed in future bikes, but in future years. But they ended up putting a Fox thirty six on the Jekyll. Yep. Uh, Great fork, uh, really good fork up front. And then they also ended up redesigning the rear suspension design. Yes. It now has a push shock, yes. not a pull shock, and they've redesigned the linkage system to it. It's still similar in some it's, respects. It's still very similar. A, it's a, I mean, it's still a modified single pivot, but yeah. they did redesign that carbon link in the middle, the the fourth link, Yeah. and they did also just, change. Aesthetically, I have some issues with that one. I think it, the link itself looks cool, but it looks like it's made out of like a... Like low quality plastic. Yeah. Well, technically carbon is plastic. Yes, which carbon is plastic. But I'm talking about like a, <laughs> you
1: know, um, when you it see just looks like, unfinished and unrefined.
0: Yeah. So it looks like if you went to uh, it does look like a prototype piece. But the exact thing of like the plastic that it looks like is just instead of green, it's black. Is if you go to a spot where it's housing like uh, sprinklers or anything else? Yeah, absolutely. It looks like the the little the irrigation little, boxes. Yes, you put in your ground. little yeah. green ones. It looks exactly like that. That's yep. true. I didn't think about that. Yeah. So that looks when I saw that
1: that's the first thing I thought and I was like, Oh, that looks cheap. Well, technically those are fiber reinforced with resin, which is exactly what carbon is. So they're technically the same thing. It
0: is. Yeah. Theory. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Your linkage is a irrigation box.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) anyway, but the thing is they, it, it, it performs well. Did we get into, should I get into how it performs or are there other changes you want to highlight?
1: Um, there was one other change that I wanted them to make on the new version. I really like how stiff that frame was in every aspect, and one of the big things was the head tube. They had their system integration head tube, which was inch and a half all the way through. Yeah. And so when you ran the lefty, you had an inch and an eighth steerer tube clamp yeah. to put your, your stem on. Yeah. That and you limits you. you had to run you. a unique stem. Yeah, you had to run a very unique stem, and not many companies made very different lengths yeah. of inch and a half clamp diameter you know, good luck finding anything with a 35 mil bar clamp. But even 31.8, it's it was hard to find them. I ended up the only one that I found was a 45 degree Thompson X4. Yeah, and they even stopped making that. Right. So I like that they went to a traditional tapered
0: yep, steer tube, Now you can run whatever, and stem now I you can have. run
1: whatever stem you want. Yep. So
0: okay, so are you ready for the for my thoughts? I want to know what you think. Okay, so we I didn't ride it a whole lot. Um, so that's the first disclaimer to get out of the way. Yes. Um, and we wrote it in terms of the trails that we wrote on. It's a hard pack that crumbles down to be a little bit loose in spots and with a lot of sharp lava rock.
1: Yeah. Very lots of igneous fractured rock. Yes. Yeah. So I'm igneous, sure. That, I'm getting all. Yeah, geo. Yeah. Look at
0: you. Look at that. Geologists are the Kardashians of the scientist world. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> I did not know that. That's Sheldon good to Cooper know that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so this one. <laughs> The thing about it the, uh, the thing I'm sure everyone's just l- sounds like that dirt sounds amazing. <laughs> There's A lot of sarcasm there. It's, it's like <laughs> it's Mars not great. Skate. It's not the great. It's not great. But the so I took off on the bike and the first thing I noticed is holy cow, this thing feels bottomless. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing I noticed. Now it's got 160 mil up front, 170 up front with a one 170. That's the right, rear. 165 in the rear. Yeah, but it felt bottomless, and I'm not saying compared to my ASR. I'm saying period. It just felt bottomless. Yeah. So I'm not talking about the length of the travel as much as the feel that you get, right? Um, It didn't feel like as progressive, I guess, as I thought it would feel.
1: It felt like it just keeps going.
0: Keeps going, Yeah. exactly. Uh, The one thing I, but the interesting thing is a lot of the time when you get a bike like that, it feels dead and it doesn't give you any feedback. Yeah. And this one though, it, you know, you could push into it and you could play and kind of pop off of things and push and, it still gave you something back. Yeah. Which is just, I think, a sign of a very good job of them with that Gemini shock working with Fox to make sure that thing is tuned exactly right for that suspension design. Of course. Because it it delivered in that sense. It was really plush. I felt like I could have gone through breaking bumps of any frequency and size and I would have been comfortable Yeah, because it was soaking everything up so well, especially in the rear. Yeah. Just really good, really good at that. Um, the other thing that I noticed, and this is partially um, just the 27.5 wheels compared to 29 that I've been used to for so long, Yeah, but it, it just, it was very quick to change direction. Now here's where that turned into a bit of a negative when I was climbing the front end, and part of this also it's got a pretty slack head tube angle sixty five degrees yeah it's slacker than the Nomad yep it liked to wander okay. a bit yeah when we were going when I was going on this single track that had any type of uh, technical spots or anything else picking a line was a little tough. That said, it wasn't that difficult if you picked a bad line because it just Cadillac the whole thing over, right? It just kind of ate up whatever you hit. Mm -hmm. So this bike, to me, was the type of bike that if somebody is not a line picker and they don't want to change that, which I think that anybody that feels that way, they should change their style. You should become a person that's judicious about lines. But if you aren't that person, this bike would put you well within your comfort zone because it's going to allow mistakes in that respect. Of course. Um, the short chain stays totally felt them. Uh, it was it was quick and playful, but it was quick to steer, and it liked it if you were hanging to the back of the bike. Yeah. So basically, that meant that like if I was going through rough sections or any type of um, quick spots or had to turn or work my way through rocks or anything else like that. I was able to just easily carry the front end through a lot of sections and kind of steer with the rear, so to speak. Yeah. And so that was fun. It kind of felt more dirt bike ish in that respect. Okay. Um, climbing, Going from the hustle and flow deal. So hustle is when you're climbing. That's the mode that you want to use. Flow is when you are descending or anything else.
1: And so the flow mode is 165 millimeters of travel, as we already discussed. And the hustle mode is 130. Yes. So it decreases travel by 35 millimeters, but then it also reduces your air volume, usable air volume, and changes the entire damper curve.
0: So it makes it feel more progressive as <clears throat> yes. well.
1: So you still have an active suspension. This yep. is not the lockout of the rear suspension. This right. is just you now sit 20% into your sag so that the bottom bracket is technically taller and your head tube angle is a little bit steeper. This makes uh-huh. you sit more up and forward. Yep. This is not a lockout.
0: No. And it's it. that's, I think, good because I rarely use the full lockout that I have with my RockShox Monarch on my ASR. First of all, because it pedals so well, it doesn't bob a lot. But also, I like to have some give in the back end, because the majority of the climbs that we're climbing, they have some type of uh, rocks or uneven surfaces, and I want to be able to maintain traction better. And this does a really good job of that. The one thing is, if you don't have your fork locked out, then it feels super weird, because you're staying high in that travel, and this bike likes to sit low in its travel when you're in the flow mode. Yes. Right? You sit 35%
1: into the sag and you drop that really bottom low. bracket three quarters of an inch over Which the hustle mode. Along
0: those lines, I had three pedal strikes.
1: Yeah on my beautiful brand new carbon <laughs> descendant Thanks, Thank you. I'm so sorry. No, I'm just kidding. It
0: was just so but it was impossible to not
1: get them. And in that terrain what we were what you were riding it in that is a little bit different the trail that I sent you onto is a very primitive trail. I yes. think, you know, I trail run it with the dogs. Yep. And and I ride it I actually, yeah. ri- I ride that on my cross bike too, Yeah, but it's gnarly. It's not a, you know, it's nowhere near like a smooth single track. It's, no. a, it's got rocks everywhere. There's a bunch of rock hard edges. There's yeah. rock piles. So it's definitely not a trail that's, you know, smooth and groomed and made for, you know, a low bottom bracket bike yep. to begin with.
0: Yeah. I and found a bike myself used to. ratcheting a ton. <laughs> yeah. Um. If, and it was, and I'm not saying I was, you know, and I'm not a, I'm not the type of guy that does a lot of pedal strikes. That's just not really my deal. I think our house is blowing down. It's It's crazy windy right now. We've got another
1: atmospheric river flowing into the Sierras tonight.
0: Yeah. So, but we, that bike is, it sits so low That, uh, suddenly when you switch it to the hustle mode, suddenly you're sitting high up in that, in the back end, it doesn't drop down as much. And if you don't lock out your fork, it feels really weird. Yeah. The problem is you lock out your fork and suddenly you've got a more rigid fork up front, plus a wandering front end. Plus you're sitting a little higher then. Yeah. So then it doesn't feel very stable when you're climbing in a lot of situations if you're hitting bumps. So... While if you were on an extended climb or anything smooth, I would be in that hustle mode all day. Yeah. If I'm on technical terrain, I'm probably just leaving it open because to be honest, it didn't pedal too bad. Yeah. In just wide open mode. I mean, it wasn't terrible. So it was pretty good actually. But, so,
1: and now the other thing that, you know, that people need to understand is this Gemini is invariably, uh, based on a float X EVOL. Yes. So the cool thing is not only do you have this hustle and flow mode setup you still have your open medium firm setting on yes. the the non drive side of the bike. So for climbing if you want to keep it in the flow mode but you want to put it into medium or firm and have that it. locked rear you can. Yeah. They put the the Fit Four damper, which I fundamentally disagreed with. Like yeah. they put the Fit Four damper in the front end of that. I can see you picketing this with a sign in yeah. front of them or something. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. Seriously. Yeah. I like yeah. a feminist show. Like yeah. one of the <laughs> yeah. protest yeah. things. I'm just holding yeah. up a sign that says Fit for, Yeah, You know, no <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No more Fit Four. Um, yeah, not that it's a terrible damper, but I just like my RC twos. Um, yeah. but In that bike, I like that ability that if you're going to put it in the hustle mode, you can put the front end into the medium instead of going full firm. You can still put it into the medium or trail mode and still get more support out of that front end and still have it be compliant.
0: So this bike uh, is not for trail riding. This bike, in my mind. No. I don't think it is. I think that this is a bike that you could take to a bike park and it'd be a blast. This is going to be my North Star
1: Mammoth bike this year.
0: Yep. I think that you could take this bike to an Enduro and you could do have a blast too. If it's a really peddly one, like don't you dare take this to Sea Otter. Um, if you're at Sea Otter, take your cross bike for yeah. the Enduro. Just take the Gemini out and put a piece of wood <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's eight and a half inches long yeah. with eyelets in right. it. And just put that in the rear.
0: That would be about
1: right. That's the hustle mode yeah. for the Sea Otter Enduro.
0: Yeah, So, but it's, it's not for... the Average trail rider guy? No, it's not. And it's and part of that is because it sits so low in that suspension and that bottom bracket gets you really low, and you're just going to be pedal striking and pedaling isn't that enjoyable in that case. Once again, you can put it in the hustle mode and you can change that. Um, but I do think that this bike. Uh, the the last thing I want to touch on is it is so stiff the chassis and specifically. That's, and that we're not talking about the suspension. I'm talking about the frame. Yeah, it is so stiff and you can feel it like, and it's good. And what you get from that is even though it feels like a Cadillac, it is absolutely, you know, exactly where your rear wheel is, you know, exactly where your front wheel is and you feel what the bike is doing and what it's going to do. So you're able to, even though it's a leggy bike, and even though it's got some big old meaty tires on there and squishy suspension, you can really be precise with where you put it because that chassis is very stiff.
1: Yeah. And the other thing, just the one other part to add in, this bike is a Boost 148 rear end, but then it also has Cannondale's AI offset, so that's asymmetric integration. My cross bike has this mm-hmm. on a 12 by 142 setup, but so what they do in the the AI setup, I've covered this,
0: I think we vaguely have, yeah, before, yeah, yeah. but
1: what they do is this the whole rear end of this bike. Is shifted to the non drive side by six millimeters. Yep. And then they dish the, the rim and tire back over to that to correct that six millimeter so that it's still in line. So not only do you have the ridiculously wide spoke angles of the boost rear end, but which, they're also, but then they're also even because even. you've now dished it back over. Makes sense. So now you have even spoke tension, even lateral stiffness. And you just have that really wide buttress of that wide spoke angle on the boost. So
0: downside of that is if you have wheels that you're bringing over to this, which now you don't have to worry about the lefty hub. Which no, is yeah. nice, but you would have to get your rear wheel dished, which uh, is
1: not a big deal. That's, but it's
0: really not that tough. Dishing that rear rear a rear wheel is like
1: thing. twenty bucks at a bike shop, or you can learn how to do it yourself. Yeah, and most most any wheel will go six millimeters over.
0: Yeah,
2: you know
1: when uh, when I got my my Super X Mavic told me that I had to get the AI specific, um, Sirium Pro disc all roads. I just dished them and they're fine. Yeah, and they, they work
0: just fine. They work great. So I give the, if I'm a downhiller uh, that likes to party. I would give this bike a seven out of ten wood ride again. Uh because that it's not a full downhill bike, right? But it's you could do really gnarly stuff on that bike. Okay. If I'm an enduro rider, I give that bike maybe an eight and a half out of ten.
1: Now, are you talking tame enduro like your typical like say a north american enduro versus the gnarly ews
0: yeah i'm saying even like north american enduro okay i would give it probably an eight out of ten in that case okay for those guys would shred again yes and then if i was going to be the person that might participate in a local enduro but does some trail riding i would give this bike a seven out of ten okay I still would never drop below seven on this thing, though. It's a good bike, man. And and keep in mind, I have high standards. Yeah. So, but this bike is uh, the Cannondale Jekyll, the twenty eighteen Cannondale Jekyll is a seriously good bike.
1: So, just really quick, then, to you know, I would like to know your opinion based on what you've ridden on the new Jekyll. How do you think you would like the new trigger? I want a prediction yeah. out of you.
0: I think that the trigger. If I was a downhill guy, I wouldn't you know, wouldn't be using the trigger. Well, of course. If I was an enduro guy that's doing more gnarly enduros, I don't know, maybe a 7 or 6 out of 10. Who knows? We'll see when we ride it. Yeah. But I think that if I was a trail guy, I bet I would really like this one. Yeah. I think that the key is going to be figuring out what combination of levers you pull and flip yeah. uh, to be able to make that thing ride uh, well. The only hesitation I would have, once again, we're talking about less travel here, and I, I'm pretty sure that Cannondale would have a firmer or or I should say more initially supportive tune with the shock as well. Of course. To be able to sit a little higher since it's a trail bike. Um if that's the case then it's gonna be an awesome bike. Yeah. Uh, if it sits a little too low and it has pedal strike issues, then man, that's a that's a bad deal. And the trigger won't. I don't think that they would have that. Absolutely. So um but then Steven uh
1: then you went and rode my Yeti five point five and you ruined me D I two. You ruined me so it's like a twenty-seven pound bike, twenty-seven point one one with pedals.
0: Uh, yeah, it's called. Yeah, it's Project Aurora, um, and and so I rode that bike, and it is the total opposite. So if I if I can compare these two bikes, they both like to party. They do. They are both very capable.
1: One's more of a gentleman. The other one is like the t-shirt tuxedo yes guy.
0: Yes. Uh, if I was to compare this to eighties butt rock. So your bikes are 80s butt rock, okay? okay. Uh, you with me? Well, maybe describe 80s butt rock a little bit. So Judas Priest, White Snake, a um, little bit of Def Leppard maybe, uh, okay. a little bit of that. You okay. know, poison, right? Okay. Brett Michaels. Good. And Stephen's throwing the horns. You can't see that, but it's happening. So if these bikes are 80s butt rock, the Cannondale is a power ballad, all right? Like what? Name so of power. So we're talking something, every rose has its thorn. Okay, so poison. some white snake. Uh, by Poison, right? Oh, Poison. Like, what yeah, am I yeah, talking yeah. about? I'm sorry. Uh, so every rose has its thorn. It, you're not going to listen to that all the time, yeah. right? You're going to listen to it sometimes. And you might not want to listen to it in, in front of the rest of the bros because they might think that you're being a bit emotional, but you like it. It's a little slower. It's a little more flowy, but it has its time and place, all right? So that's every rose has its thorn. Yeah, and it was Poison. I'm an idiot. I yeah. don't know why I said name. <laughs> so that's what I see the Cannondale being. It's okay. a power ballad. Okay. Meanwhile, uh, I would say that the SB55 is more like Thunderstruck by ACDC. It's more like a typical butt rock song. Does that make sense? Okay. A little more fast, a little more tight, a little more percussive, a little bit more um, quick feeling, if you will. Okay. Right? Not saying that one is better than the other; they just have different—they're just different strokes for different folks. Sometimes you need a ballad when you're on the boat, right in the summer. Yeah, that's just where power ballads dominate. That's where they live. But then sometimes you need some thunderstruck to get you going. Okay. So, I felt like that Cannondale was a little bit smooth, a little bit—it uh, it kind of calmed things down more when okay. you're on the trail. Okay, the five-five felt more um, uh, supportive underneath yeah. you when you were riding it, it still retained traction. They somehow captured somebody from Hogwarts and had them do something to the rear suspension. Cause I do not understand how Yeti gets that thing to pedal so well. Yeah. Um, I, I don't see the point of even flipping the shock into locked out mode unless That's why I put a DHX, unless you like, never use the climb level, unless you're racing a crit or something. I don't know. <laughs> like, there's no point. Yeah. like it pedals so well wide open. Yeah. Um, it sits high in the suspension versus the Cannondale sitting low. It's just like total opposite paths, right? Yeah. Um, the, it's But at the same time, when you push through on the on the Yeti, it doesn't feel like there's an initial harshness when you push through it. It falls through the stroke perfectly, like yeah. kind of where you'd want it. And I say perfectly. I don't want to drift into a hyperbole here, but it falls through that stroke evenly. There is no initial harshness blow through then support. Yeah. it's It falls through and it ramps up perfectly. Yeah. That's what I felt at least, yeah. right? Uh, I also felt like the bike was a, the Yeti was a little bit more, um, uh, it still felt very stiff, extremely stiff in the chassis, mm-hmm. especially like vertically stiff. I didn't get a whole lot of chance to test out the lateral stiffness on it, okay. but vertically stiff, it felt very, it felt like everything was going through the suspension yeah. very, you know, like you could feel that. Um, and the, the one thing that I would say about the Yeti too, is I felt like that bike put me in in terms of climbing a much better position i was more upright even when we're talking about being in the hustle mode yeah i just felt like i was more upright and the suspension behaved better because the problem about the hustle mode is if you put it in there you're dealing with a really progressive small amount of travel so if you hit like a bigger rock it kind of bucks you up a bit okay and uh but that you know you learn to deal with that and it's just and it's great but this thing with the 5.5, five, you know, you didn't even have to lock anything out, and it just seemed to soak everything up. So, uh, yeah, and the one thing also that I felt was uh, the, tw- the, the Jekyll on this trail especially, because you're dealing with big rocks a yeah. lot of the time, it was really hard to keep its momentum and part of that you know the slack head tube angle can roll over things sure just fine but the front end wandered a bit you know you kind of harder to pick your lines that type of a thing but it sat so low and it's traveled too i almost felt like a lot of your weight was like being thrown up and down into the bike versus with the four five it seems like it just five five. or five five it just would carry over stuff better i guess okay could be the 29 inch wheels too versus the 27.5 a lot of different things that play there but um yeah the Jekyll is an Awesome bike. Okay. Um, I know where my heart lies, though.
1: Yeah. So the five five. So I have, I have two more questions for you. Okay. Uh, this was your first time riding Eagle. Yes. What would you think? Uh.
0: So, uh, I think that I don't think I would use it. I would use it if I had it on my bike. Yeah. I should clarify. I don't think I need that. If that makes sense, doesn't mean I wouldn't have it if I could. It'd be awesome. Yeah. But when I look at the cost to upgrade from my 1042 cassette and my 11 speed up to that 12 speed, mm, not worth. It. It's not worth the cost. <clears throat> I'm not saying that it's not effective because it is. It's just not worth the cost for me, yeah. especially because in the, this use case, I spend more time doing you know XC type of stuff where I don't. I'm not dropping down my speed a whole lot yeah, and you don't so, need 500 percent gear rate no i don't yeah. um I'm, I'm, I'm a fit person steven yeah. so um so but i the one thing that also worries me a bit about eagle is just how far down your derailleur hanger hangs yeah when you're talking about being in your bottom gear down there and it's
1: especially on a 27 to 5 wheel like i know it's only an inch and a half yeah. total you know total diameter difference but yeah. that derailleur is a big derailleur it it's is.
0: hanging out there it is so, um, but the, it shifted just as smoothly yep. as XX one, uh, or XO one, or even for that matter, they, they even X one shifts so well, yeah. um, GX even shifts well. So it shifted fantastically. Didn't feel like there were any big jumps either. No, um, that, that 50
1: all. to 42 does not feel like an eight gear an eight yeah, jump.
0: It almost feels like less of a jump than what you have currently with X one or XX one cassettes, yeah. the non Eagle ones. Case
1: RAM fanboy. Last yeah, question. Yeah, Shimano Di Two.
0: Oh yeah, uh, fishing reels. That's what. I got. That's what you're gonna say. <laughs> no, but no, what, no. What did you think? It's good, man. Um, Other than so, it shifted incredibly well.
1: With and now. As a reminder, yeah, we're full XTR Di2, yes, ninety fifty one with the E thirteen with the E thirteen TRS race cassette, the yes. nine forty six, and it's also a KMC X eleven SL DLC all black chain. Yes, so
0: go ahead. Yeah, It shifted uh, perfectly, yeah. and. Uh, And I ran this, I probably drained your battery pretty quick because when I was riding back, I just held down the downshift button, then held down the upshift button, then held down the downshift and held down the upshift. Continuous shifting is fun. Yeah. I was waiting for it to make a mistake. Yeah. And I wanted it to make a mistake because then I wanted to basically say in my mind that, yeah, fishing reels, bro. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But it didn't make a mistake. Yeah. It shifted perfectly. Um, I didn't shift under load because I am absolutely against shifting under load. Anybody that does shift under load, shame on you.
1: But the beauty um, is with the DI two, you could,
0: and that's what I felt <clears throat> because I was pedaling while I was doing it, while I was shifting, of course. But well, that's good, easing up, yeah, yeah, easing up a bit, you know, while I, while I shift, and it just was so smooth, and it really held it in and well. But two things: number one, it has cables, and for me to invest in an electronic drivetrain no way am I going to invest in something that still has cables like that. Yeah, Eagle eTap is right around the corner, I'm sure. It's yeah. close. Um, it's going to happen.
1: We think there's and somebody with a
0: lot of tattoos inside <laughs> the
1: SRAM Corporation running around with that Perhaps. in the slow area <clears throat> of California. So yeah, Duncan be. Yeah. yeah,
0: so that, I'm <clears throat> sure, is happening. Yeah. Uh, and when that happens, yeah, I would love to have an electronic drivetrain. Yeah. Um, I think that also the benefit of how SRAM does eTap uh, so right now you can adjust on the fly super easily you can adjust your derailleur and trim it while you're riding never getting off your bike Actually, and and
1: Shimano's pretty pretty always cool. been that way as well yeah it's just it's campy in the roadside their um eps stuff has always been you have to get off the bike and go through a bunch of crap and then you can do it you know i i was on Shimano um di2 on Ultegra for you know what Two years, two years on my Cannondale uh, Super 6, and then two years on my Pinarello Cross bike. And yeah, you just hold down a button, and then you do your trim, hold down the button, you're good. You yep. never get off the bike.
0: Um, I like ETAP a whole lot more in a lot of ways yeah. because of just the ergonomics of the shifters. Although DI2 shifters, the road ones are good, but getting to shifter ergonomics, what in the world— did they design that shifter for? That's Because it certainly is not a human thumb.
1: No, it's so weird. Like, that is the <laughs> one thing that I'm just like, what are you thinking, Shimano? I was wondering when I was riding, I was like, what am I pressing on? Yeah, the, the like- <laughs> thumb lever doesn't even fit a human thumb. No. First of all, and it's, instead of being a, like, if you look at your normal shifter, your normal shifter is on a rotation. Yes. You know, it's on a, a horizontal rotation forward. Yep. These... Are on a like they circle the handlebars. It's like to a ship. dish. It's a, it's yeah, it's, the, it's a very, very weird setup. And that's the one complaint I've seen from a lot of people on the Mountain DI2 stuff. And I don't understand why Shimano did it that way. Yeah. I don't, you know. It doesn't make sense to me. It's kind of dumb, but it's also one of those things you just get used to. It's like double tap. Why on God's green earth would they have one lever that does both of them? Because you, you get all kinds it, of missions. But then you get used to it.
0: My, it makes, my force one. But it also makes like weird intuitive sense once you use it too. Yeah. Except you, know?
1: you do every once in a while get miss shifts out of it.
0: Yeah. Yes. But mechanically, yes. it doesn't
1: work perfectly, yes. right?
0: And this thing mechanically worked perfectly. It's just it doesn't the ergonomics mess up. of it. It's just that I don't know what they were thinking with ergonomics. Of that and show. I also so think that's that an I need.
1: To, I think I need to also rotate the shifter
0: Perhaps. back
1: a little bit because that the thumb shifter for going into an easier gear is pretty far up there. Yeah. And the thing I'm used to with Shimano, I'm used to the rapid fire where I can shift into a, an easier gear with my thumb, and then while I'm standing up sprinting, I can use my index finger to push the button back on the mechanical stuff because yeah, you get both ways. Weird humans. Yeah. So weird
0: Shimano humans. But then
1: I got used to you know on my last Yeti and. And my Jekyll before they were all SRAM. Yep. So I got used to doing thumb thumb shifting instead of having that index finger. Yep. Well the DI2 doesn't follow the rapid fire mentality. You lose that ability to use your shifting into a harder gear with your index finger pushing that button back. And
0: you he- can't do that. Here's the weirdest thing about that. There's no reason that you're there are reasons that a mechanical shifter needs to follow certain rules of leverage and everything else in order to, to function well. Yeah. We're just pressing buttons. Yeah, we are literally pressing a button that clicks and hits a, a solenoid. That's all. Yeah. So you could really make this thing ergonomic, and I'm sure they will. Uh, the last complaint with the shifter was the fact that it, if I was to compare it, it was like a mouse from 1995.
1: Very hard, heavy. It's clicks. like
0: a well, and it's also like it. it bl- it's a longer throw than yeah. I was expecting, and then as it's going through, you kind of have this weird initial click but then you get closer and then there's like another click and that's when it really shifts and it feels weird.
1: I'm going to tell you right now that double click is to get two gears in one click. So there's a click click and that's a two gear shift, but it didn't happen that way. Well then, maybe you were feeling an initial. It's just got a weird,
0: and it's on both shifters. So basically, it's just unrefined, is what I'm getting to. Okay, the shifter is 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 bollocks, and for some reason, you have a silly screen telling you what gear you're in. Well, I know when I bought bikes from Walmart, that was cool to know what gear I was in, but I don't care anymore. Yeah, like so. Once like there are just some weird things about XTR Di2 that it shifts better than SRAM. Straight up shifts better. Yeah. Uh, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. It just shifts so well. But there's so many things about it where I'm just like, why? Like, what were you thinking? Like, it feels half-baked. Okay. And so I think I would like to see, I want to see Eagle E-Tap. Okay. Uh, because E-Tap, right out of the gate on the road, well done like, very well done it works well it feels great everything is you don't have awesome. to have
1: special frames you don't have to figure out where <sighs> so to put good. your battery you know i had to custom and, mount my battery in the down tube
0: yeah that bike and the ergonomics are so good and it's just it's awesome but so i think that'll come out and uh, we'll see that so uh steven really quick ews tasmania is happening this coming weekend yes uh if you're listening to it it's probably happening while you're listening to it Tasmania, the home of the Tasmanian devil. Which is a cute little turd. That thing is an actual adorable little animal. Yes, yes. And he's not as violent as he seems in the Looney Tunes cartoons at all. No. Um, But EWS, round two, it's in Tasmania. Weather's calling for dry right now. Yes. Tasmania, for those that don't know, is an island off of the southeastern coast of Australia. And it's, uh, the, the spot where they're at in Tasmania is not that big. It's pretty small, but the spot that they're at in, in Tasmania is, um, up in Derby. So that's going to be in the Northeast corner of Tasmania. We're talking in terms of distance from the equator. We're talking like Pacific Northwest style distance from the equator, yeah. pretty far away from it. Yeah. Uh, that said, it's looking like it's going to be in the sixties, uh, for weather. So not too bad. And the dirt is pretty different than what they had. There are sections where it's t- kind of jungly, and it'll be similar to what they had in round one at Rotorua, minus the rain, of course, hopefully. yeah. Uh, but the majority of it is a lot of dry, dusty, loose stuff. with it's More arid than... Yeah, yeah, with big granite slabs, a lot of that.
1: Because you're further from the tropics by god i think um you're what 14 1500 miles further south yes towards the south pole
0: yeah Yeah. so it's it's got this granite stuff because it used to be a big mining area yeah and a lot of like long sections of granite uh 1700 meters of climbing uh so you're getting close to around 1500 feet right i think um, or I mean, five thousand. feet. just it's just shy. It's like right around forty-five. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Fifty-six kilometers is the total length. So you're looking at around a thirty-mile day, roughly. On that, um, and we're throwing out random numbers here, guys. We're, we're not guesstimating. Random, but we're, get, we're estimating. Yeah. So go easy on us. We've gotten a few people correcting. But we do us know things. it's seven stages, not seven-ish. Yeah, it's seven stages. Seven in metric and standard. That is it or yeah. not. Yeah. So seven stages. Uh, it's going to be a quick day. Um, I Fairly think quick, yeah. I think it's gonna be pretty quick. Yeah. So and I think this one is going to favor the likes of uh, a lot of the traditional players that we see in EWS yep. if the weather stays.
1: You've got your low. local New Zealand guys that dominated going down there as well. But I think this is
0: gonna be Tasmania's kind of a different game. Yeah. And even a lot of the trails, a lot of the trails are old, but a lot of them are newer. A lot of them are old mining trails because it's a mining area, but a lot of them are newer and there's a lot of man-made features into it. So Um, but to your point, there's a lot of granite slabs. And as we all know, when you're talking about granite slabs that becomes so limiting online choice, that really does benefit people that know it well. Yep. So it'll be interesting to see, and we'll have a review next week on how that turns out. And, uh, we'll see if the, uh, the results are flipped on their head again and and the masters boys can take it.
1: The one thing I really like about this, and and you had shared it with me, is that the the Derby Dam breach that happened years ago that basically flooded the town and made it so that it went from like what three thousand people down to like two hundred fifty people living
2: there. Yeah,
1: Um, over over much time. Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. they actually get to ride the channel that that dam breach went through yeah which sounds like a blast
0: it's just like solid mm. it's solid granite slabs but they're like cragged and broken up yeah it's going to look su- it looks it super it
1: sounds fun. like it's going to be fun i can't wait to see some pictures of it and some video
0: it'll be awesome yeah so uh steven let's close things out with the tips you don't care they are counting on your tips to live my tip is going to be the k edge bar mounts So, or I should say Garmin mounts uh, that that mount to your bars. Uh, K-Edge is a company that makes CNC'd and like really high-end aluminum stuff. And they make chain catchers, a few different things like that. But their bar mounts are always my favorite ones to use because they are well-made. They aren't like uh, bar flies, which I'm sorry, bar fly. Uh, I've even talked to people at the company. They're like the coolest people. But I don't like how the lack of positivity you get when you twist lock your computer in. It's kind of like you twist, lock it in, and then it just kind of stays meh. It's yeah. just kind of pinched in there. Yeah. But with uh, these with these ones here with K-Edge, it snaps into place really positive, holds it really well. And you can also put a, Gar- a a GoPro mount on the base of it, so pretty cool. But recently I've switched over to the Wahoo Element, and I had taken that Garmin, uh, the, the female Garmin mount, I had taken that and rotated it 90 degrees so I could use it with my Wahoo. And while that kind of worked my Wahoo didn't have the positive click because the tabs were in the wrong spot. Yeah. Now, Wahoo or K-Edge has always sold a Wahoo-specific bar mount, uh, but instead of spending, I didn't want to spend $60, $70 on new bar mounts across the board because they're not not cheap, but they're worth the money. They're good bar mounts. Yeah. Uh, Now, they're just selling the female piece, uh, well, and they've been doing this for a while. The little plastic insert. The female, yeah, plastic uh, piece for it that works for the Wahoo. So I bought that, and I'm switching over all my mounts, and I have positive click retention and engagement again. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting stuff. Uh, I know that probably sounds pretty lame, but for me, I'm pretty excited about it because I'm liking the Wahoo element, and I don't want to get rid of my K-Edge stuff. So K-Edge bar mounts, check them out. So my pick is actually it's the stand that we
1: always use in mm. our photo shoots.
0: We've gotten some questions on that. Yeah, so
1: mm-hmm. um, it's kind of a unique stand, and I actually got mine from my Cannondale rep. And you can actually, at one point, I don't know if Cannondale is selling them anymore. Okay, but they're actually made by a different company. And I've been trying to find the Google image of it, and I can't really find it anywhere. But it's made by a different company, and you can see the style, you know, from our photo shoots of what you know what yep. our stand looks like. Um, and then you can just go online and Google image search bicycle stand, but that is like the most stable stand I've ever used. Bikes never fall over. It holds my cross bike. It holds 27.5, It holds a 26. It holds 29. It doesn't matter. Um, it's a really good little setup and I'll, you know, I'll definitely post, um, a picture of it, but I just can't seem to find the actual, Um, display stand that it is.
0: Yeah, we'll post up some pictures so you guys can get some idea of it. But it's a good way to hold your bike in your garage, too. Yeah. It's a sweet way
1: to do it. But it it. is made by someone else. It's not Cannondale-specific. I just know that Cannondale was selling them for a while. Yeah. So you can try your Cannondale dealer and ask them. You know, show them the picture of mine. Um, And they'll know. My rep, Dan Gazarian, gave me mine. Actually, he gave them to the shop, and I stole one of them for myself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Good stuff. Yeah. All right, everybody, uh, that'll be it for this episode. You can submit your questions to us at mtbpodcast.com. You can leave reviews. You can share the podcast from there. You
1: should leave reviews, and you should share There we are,
0: especially this week, because remember, if you review the podcast and if you share out, uh, or if you document in there how you've shared the podcast, please do that as well. Uh, we will pick a winner for the Yakima Bike Rack, and we'll ship it out to you. Like we said, it's subjective completely. So the more character, the better. Yeah. Uh, The more praise might be better, too. Yeah. Yeah. We reserve the right to to be our own judges in this case. Absolutely. We'll talk to you all next week. Have a nice day.